Expats are one group of people whose plans have been skittled by COVID. Some have moved back, but will they stay for good? What of those who stayed put in London or Hong Kong or Singapore, etc.? Are they having second thoughts? And there's the 30,000 or so that haven't been able to get a flight. Will they still want to call Australia home after effectively being abandoned? And what are some of the financial implications of these decisions? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? TheElephantInTheRoom.com.au What's happening with expats in the face of COVID is something we've been asked a lot recently. There've been a lot of anecdotal evidence of expats returning and reoccupying their properties, leading to a shortage of family homes on the rental market. On the other side of the coin, we've uh, heard of people staying put because they're reluctant to abandon a promising international career and settle for a lesser role in Australia. And then there are those who want to return when they find that right job and are now actively looking to buy so that they'll have a home to come back to. Local buyers are often spooked by this last group as there is a perception that they have a lot more money to spend. But it's not that simple because buying and selling property while you live overseas brings with it a range of financial, namely tax, implications. Today we're speaking with financial planner who specialises in working with Aussie expats. Brett Evans is the Managing Director for the Europe, Middle East and Africa region uh, and a financial planner with Atlas Wealth Management, which is the first Australian financial or so. Is it is an Australian financial services firm? Yes, okay, the first Australian financial services firm to specialise in providing financial advice to Australian expats. Brett himself has been an expat on and off literally his entire life and currently lives in Dubai with his family and we really appreciate you joining us today, Brett. Thank you, Veronica. Thank you, Chris. Absolutely great to have you on, Brett. I mean, it's probably a bit of an envious job, to be honest. When I was a financial advisor, I was like, I'd love to just be an expat financial advisor, travel the world, help Aussies all over the world. It's a, it's a pretty cool job. And you're, it's an interesting person to talk to because I think the expat um, conversation is something that's popping up a lot for us. But as a financial advisor, how has sort of COVID itself and you know everything that's created around that how has that affected your clients sort of financial plan and you know what they really want to do longer term how has it shifted things look i think you could divide the market into three sectors you know there's the the first sector is the obvious one those who were furloughed retrenched lost their job and had to return to australia you know a lot of places that expats live your residency is tied to your working capacity so if you don't have a job, therefore you don't have entitlement to residency, therefore you virtually have to leave that country. The second lot is those who have always been a bit ambivalent about their money and they've enjoyed the life, the adventure, the travel, the, the work, but never really found finance sexy. And it's always been priority number 50 on their, um, on their list of things to take seriously. So this has sort of brought them out and realised that they do need to it's time to adult and time to be smart about their money because they were lucky to get through the pandemic. Um, They don't want to be in the same situation again of not having that financial nest egg or those assets behind them. Um, And last of all, 
it's actually surprisingly uh, led to a bit of a boom of people coming out of Australia. And, and the press aren't talking about this at all. But what's actually happening right now is a lot of countries are throwing a lot of cash around. And what that's meaning is that there's a lot of people, and over the last six months we've talked to a lot, of people coming out of Australia to become an expat for the first time. So oh. it goes sort of against the grain of, of what all the press are talking about. But, you know, when you have... Um, countries like Saudi, for example, who are throwing around hundreds of billions of dollars on projects, they're always going to lean on the Australian IP when it comes to construction, events, all these sort of things that they need because they're a country right now that's trying to reinvent itself. They're trying to get themselves away from the petrodollars and they're almost embracing a Dubai, UAE type of ethos of being a destination as opposed to just a, a country that pumps a lot of black stuff out of the ground and makes a lot of money out of it. So the second lot there, I mean, the first lot, I mean, probably have to move back home um, and bring their money back home. And so they maybe have an impact on things here, you know, if they could get a flight, I guess. The second lot, what are they doing? They sort of, because of that financial instability, are they sort of still wanting to kick on with the expat journey? And um, Or are you finding a lot of them are saying, you know what, COVID's changed my belief, I want to be closer to my family or... Or you're thinking that's a little bit of not really true. You know, a lot of people are just sort of getting through it and wanting to stay and enjoy the world, I guess. I think they've become an expat for a reason. And that still holds true in terms of the lifestyle, the adventure, the career advancement, all those things, you know, still hold true. Um, whether they're getting paid a lot more money in Australia, in overseas than they were in Australia. The, the biggest pain point is not the financial side or the asset side. It's actually the personal side. You know, myself, I haven't been back to Australia since June 2019. And, um, you know, when you haven't seen family for that long, it is a pain point. And it is a, a discussion point that we all share on a daily basis through all the Facebook and WhatsApp groups. You know, people just want to go home and see their family. But, um, you know, you sort of, you realise that we can't, you, 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 you should worry about things you can control. We can't control that. So... Yeah, when I talk to my daughters and they say, oh, when am I going back to Australia, Dad? You know, and I say, oh, July 2022, hopefully. <laughs> and they go, ha, that's pretty funny because I'm always sort of being quite uh, flippant with them. And they go, I said, no, no, really, actually, that's probably the first time, you know, realistically, because being based in Dubai, uh, we're a feeder hub for a lot of other destinations. So if we try to get on a flight, we're competing as people coming from London, Frankfurt, Paris, everywhere to try and get back to Australia. And... You know, I know from first-hand experience talking to clients, you know, there's five people arriving on planes at times. And um, if you want to buy a ticket, economy is not an option. Business class, first class are really the only ways you can get back to Australia. And you're going to be looking about $25,000 for a one-way flight. Now, I'm not going to spend $100,000 on tickets back to Australia, plus quarantine, plus all that sort of jazz. So I'd rather put that money elsewhere. But um, certainly the emotional side is very difficult you know there is a big perception that uh the australian government doesn't really care about expats um and that's been something that's building up for a long time now you know especially on the tax side of it 2012 we had the removal of the 50 percent capital gains discount for expats uh one july last year we had the removal of the main residence exemption uh this year they announced that they're going to look at changing the tax residency rules you know at the end of the day, the way the tax rules are designed, it ignores your citizenship. You know, we're treated no differently to a Russian or a Chinese or a British investor. So there is that detachment. And, you know, even at the quite senior levels of business around the world, people we speak to on a daily basis, um, you know, it's funny. Politicians, they do what they do when it suits them. 
But when this all dies down, the first thing they want to do is get overseas and you know go on their junket trips and go on their trade missions and those sort of things. So the first person they reach out to are expats to open doors. And a common conversation that's going on right now amongst the expat community is if these people do contact them to open doors, um, the doors will be slammed shut back on them. Oh, this is really interesting. And, and it's funny because I'd never actually thought I'd, I've been hearing about these changes to the taxation. And I'd love you to step us through each one of those recent changes if you could. But I'd never thought about it from the perspective of the Australian government basically is turning its back on on expats. I mean, obviously, the, the very fact that it's been so difficult for people to get back home if they wanted to um, through this pandemic is that's pretty stark, but I hadn't actually thought that it had been manifested in the tax system as you um, uh, said there. So can you step us through that? You sort of going back to 2012, did you say, or 20, yeah, 2012? Yep. 8th of March, 2012. All right, so <laughs> as an Australian tax resident, yeah, mm. as an Australian tax resident, you're entitled to a 50 cent capital gains discount if you hold an asset longer than 12 months. Yep. Um, that was removed for expats. Mm. So what that means is if you buy an investment property today, hold it for five years and sell it, you're up for the full freight when it comes to tax on the um, on the capital gains tax. There's mm. no recognition of your citizenship or ties to Australia. But what about if you move home and then it's sell it? It's prorated. Right. Yeah, it's prorated. So if you own it overseas for five years, move back to Australia, retain it for another five years as an Australian tax resident, the first five years, you pay 100% tax. The next five years, you only pay 50% tax. Right. So it still bites you and it catches a lot of people out. You know, we saw mm. a lot of, um, not so much in the last couple of years, but probably five or 10 years ago, there were a lot of junket property trips of people, you know, coming overseas, trying to sell off the plan properties in Melbourne. And, you know, we all know the the, the apartments in, in South Bank and, and all those sort of things. Yep. Um, and, and people were paying massive prices with a lot of commission loaded up and they didn't realize that when they went back to australia and then they sold it a couple of years later and then the accountant does the tax return and goes well what's what's all this over here it's like well yeah you're a non-resident for that period so therefore you pay full tax so it normally catches people after the fact if they were lucky uh, enough to actually make a gain on those investments but <laughs> that's, uh... was, i'm glad you, i'm glad you prefaced that that's that's <laughs> the other one too uh, we've still got clients who are sitting on uh, zero gains and, and most likely losses in some of those yeah. places mm. the second one you spoke about um is a really interesting one because it's the people who have bought, say, a property in Australia um, and they sort of did it retrospective, right? Like they basically you could be living in London, you have a house in Australia and all of a sudden you could pay capital gains tax on something you lived in for 20 years in Australia. And it, what was the impact yeah. of that? And can you explain that a bit more? Because I was flabbergasted when I read about this and it ended up going through Parliament, right, and it ended up getting approved, which yeah. I was like, Surely common sense is going to kick mm. in, and it just never did. Um, and so what actually happened there with your clients? Yeah, so with the main resident exemption, which is what you're referring to, it's probably the most punitive tax change I've ever seen in my whole life. You know, I've been in the game for 25 years, and this was – it wasn't even oh, – I can sort of see what they're doing. This was just nefarious and bad. You know, the fact the fact that – and when we had clients who, you know, up until 30 June last year and, and the pandemic – magnified the problem so just for folks on the on the uh who are listening as a main residence you can live in a place as a principal place of residence you can move out let's say you own a place in melbourne you can move to brisbane you can rent in brisbane you can put a tenant in melbourne and for up to six years you're able to sell that property capital gains tax-free and australian expats were entitled to that as an australian citizen what they did was they removed that exemption which is 
bad enough as it is. I mean, if you have paid the time as an Australian taxpaying resident, you should be entitled to the benefits that go along with that. But what happened was not only did they do that, and, and we were lobbying quite heavily for that demarcation to be the date you get on the plane. The mm. way they wrote the legislation was, let's say, for example, you bought a, a house in North Ride for $200,000 and you lived in it for 20 years, and that property is now worth obviously seven figures. You jumped on a plane, flew overseas, and for whatever reason, and sometimes there is reasons are pre-planned, sometimes they're, you know, they're emergency reasons why you do things. If you were to sell that property while overseas, you would pay capital gains tax all the way back to the early 90s. So the whole, the whole period of you living in that property as a main residence has been ignored. Mm. And... Yeah, we have seen people get caught by this. I had one gentleman who called me up, um, what was it, uh, f oh, beginning of August last year, so just after the change went through. And he'd just signed a contract. He was living in Cyprus, and he just happened to stumble across one of our articles. And he said, what can I do to, to fix this? Because I'm going to be up for probably $500,000 in capital gains tax. And it wasn't a wealthy guy, just a guy who'd done the right thing, bought a place and, you know, built up his wealth. And I said, the only way you can do it is cut a check to the, to the purchaser for $50,000, $100,000 to get him to walk away from the contract. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, um, if he goes through with it, it's going to cost you a lot more. And I think, you know, the, the biggest problem we see with these types of legislation is the Australian expat community pre-pandemic was, you know, close to a million or just over a million. No one really knows how big it is. Even post-pandemic or during the period right now, there's still better than part of 600,000 Australians living overseas still. We don't vote. We're not allowed to vote. So Canberra can pass through legislation and they there's nothing we can do. They know that they can raise revenue this way, they know they can do this, but they can't be penalised at the polls. As opposed to, say, places like France, where you actually have a member of parliament who represents the French expatriates. And that would be a great thing to work towards down the track because a lot of these pieces of legislation do get pushed through ourselves and uh, about four or five other, other bodies lobbied very heavily in that first iteration of the main resident exception change when it was released in uh, 2017. And we were able to stop the first draft. And then it went quiet and we thought, okay, this is good. And then the second draft came through and it just got rushed through lower house, upper house, and yeah, the rest is history. We were lobbying, yeah, we were lobbying last year because the cutoff was 30 June. People were trying to return back to Australia to sell their properties and they couldn't get into Australia because of the pandemic. Oh, so, yeah, of course. So we, all, we, we lobbied Canberra to tr try and extend it by 12 months. It would not have been a change of legislation. It would have been very simple to do. And um, we got about 5,500 signatures in about three weeks, you know, from expats trying to petition Canberra to do this. Um, didn't hear anything. We were on call uh, emails and everything with a lot of the senior members of, of parliament and then didn't hear anything. Uh, middle of August last year, we got a nice little letter from Treasury saying thanks very much, but unfortunately, the legislation's changed and you know, suck it up. So that's about it. That's it. And, and the, what frustrates me this is the unintended consequences of that policy, right? Because it changes human behaviour. So you're mm. living in London. You, you know that North Ride example. You know, let's say you're sitting on a five hundred thousand dollar, you know, capital gains tax bill. Well, you're now disincentivized to sell that property because. You could have sold it pre-30 June, right, and avoided the CGT potentially. But now you know if you sell it from now on, and if you're not complaining to come back to Australia at any point, 
you can just hold your property. So all these expats are going to hold Australian properties that they were their their old homes because they can't afford to sell yep. them because they don't want to pay the capital gains tax bill. So what they were trying to potentially do is encourage um, less expats to own Australian property, create more supply for Australians. But what they've done is just basically uh, pigeonhole a bunch of Australian yep. properties that will never be sold until the Aussies yep. come back, which they may never come back. So yep. it's completely the unintended consequence is that you've created less supply. Um Yep. Instead of the Aussie in London saying, you know what, let's just sell that investment property because um, we don't need it anymore. Um, and so, yeah. No, you, you're spot on. I tell clients, I say, <laughs> sell your kids, sell a kidney, but just don't sell your property. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was that really meant to be the intention that it actually frees up more stock for Australians? Is that, suppose- that was the joke about it. The, the title of this legislation was Housing Affordability Bill. That was the whole joke about it. Oh, and I wow. think what they were trying to do was it was under the guise that it would improve supply in the market. It would bring down the prices because expats are buying everything, which is a joke. Expats haven't been that active, you know, in the last five years for a number of reasons, tax being one of them. Mm. Um, so it was sold under a, a false pretense and, yeah, it's just a joke. It just shows that sometimes politicians don't have any real idea how the world works because, of course, if you're going to stop someone buying a property before they leave or you want them to sell the property before they leave then fine but then you can't penalize people already own property you want to actually give them a nice big long opportunity to get rid of everything so that they do put more property on the market anyway that's because we're pragmatic and they're not so okay so that's the second bit of legislation you said there's another one coming that's hitting expats what's that one so under the current tax residency rules to qualify as a non-resident for tax purposes, uh, we use a bit of legislation that dates back to 1936, so it's a little bit old. And it refers to this old English phraseology of the resides test, the domicile test. Essentially, it's four tests. It's the resides test, where do you live? I live in Dubai. The domicile test, what do your behaviours match? That of a Dubai resident or that of a resident in Sydney? Fourth, third test is the 183-day test. Have you been outside the country longer than six months? And the last test is um, the Commonwealth Super Test, which is just a test for diplomats. Under the new rules, they're going with what they call a bright line test. So what it means is there's like a couple of subtests. So the first question is, have you been out of the country greater than 183 days? If the answer is yes, then you go to the next lot of tests. If the answer is no, then you're an Australian resident for tax purposes. Once you've gone into that next level of tests, if you have been outside the country for 183 days or greater, then the question is, uh, have you spent more than 45 days in Australia in that financial year? So if you spent less than 45 days in Australia, then you're automatically a non-resident for tax purposes. If you have spent more than 45 days in Australia and less than 183, then you go into what we call the four-factor tests. The first factor test is right of abode. can Can you rock up to a border in Australia and get granted access. Pretty much every expat tick. The second test is what we call the family test. And the family test is, do you have a spouse, partner, de facto, um, and or uh, kids under the age of 18 who are financially dependent in Australia? The third test is what we call the accommodation test. The accommodation test is, can you land at Mascot, go to a house, put a key in and gain access to that property? So if there's no tenants and and you just leave that place um, empty, then that's the accommodation test. And the last test is what we call the economic assets test. And the economic assets test is essentially holding high cash balances, 
are holding taxable Australian property, which includes apartment and houses, um, or an economic interest in a family trust. All you have to do is fail two tests, not all four, and you are deemed an Australian tax resident. So if you own Australian property and you have an Australian passport, guess what? You're done. You're an Australian tax resident, even though um, you're living overseas. So now, even, if you don't come, detail, even if you don't go back for 45 days, you could potentially... If you breach 45 days. The 45 so days. if it's less than 45, yeah. good. but which is not a lot. It's yeah. two trips. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So you could come back for... What they're trying to say is you can't go and live around the world for six, nine months of the year and, you know, have all these assets in Australia and then have a, a base in Dubai... Um, and then be saying that you you know to buy a resident, not be paying Australian tax on all your other assets and stuff like that. But Australia is basically trying to pigeonhole everyone again, and you know mm. basically clip the ticket on everything because it's so easy to fail that test, right? And then just you're an Australian tax resident, and then you've got to declare yep. it all under Australian rates. That's the sort of thing they're trying to achieve here, right? Yeah, the 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 exemption is if you reside in a country that has a double taxation agreement with Australia. Now, not all countries do then you can't be a tax resident of both. So what that means is Singapore, for example, there's a DTA between Singapore and Australia, and you have what's called a tiebreaker clause. And the tiebreaker clause is, says, if you reside, you're physically in Singapore, then you're a Singapore tax resident, regardless of what Australia says. Hong Kong does not have a DTA. Dubai does not have a DTA. UK does. Portugal doesn't. You know, there's a real mixed bag of who does and who doesn't. So it's going to come down to people watching the clock very closely because you do not want to miss that flight. You know, the biggest consideration, the problem we see is is quarantine, hotel quarantine. There's 14 days. Is that included or excluded? You know, we're all referring to a report that was released by the Board of Taxation back in 2019. And they, you know, this is all pre-pandemic. So the, the recommendations they provide to Canberra were pre-pandemic. Mm. So we're still waiting on the explanation memorandum to come out. But uh, the overall... I guess feedback from our clients is the last thing I want to do is buy property because that suddenly puts them under the economic assets test. And <laughs> if they want that to be the intended consequence, guess what? It's going to work. So where are you wow. seeing some, you mentioned Hong Kong there. Um, you know, you said lots of countries are splashing cash uh, like uh, Saudi. I mean, where yep. is that? What's this? Where are expats moving to and from? Like I imagine there's, you know, just speaking out daily, some clients have moved back from Hong Kong, you know, places like Singapore, et cetera. Um, now, maybe they're coming back, but some countries they're moving to. What are you seeing in terms of where are we all moving around to? It's You can sort of split it in two. There's those who've come back who've realised that Australia's changed and, yeah, it's not really home anymore. So they're the ones coming back out of Australia um, because the rest of the world is opening up, so jobs are becoming available. Um, then there's the newbie expats who haven't been expats before who are being tempted by these roles. Certainly, US is always the top of the tree. You know, from our inquiries, US is just, it's a beast. And uh, pre-pandemic, I'm not sure what the numbers look like now, but pre-pandemic, there was over 200,000 Australians living in the United States. Now, when you look at companies, uh, oh, sorry, sectors like IT, uh, which is a very much a US-dominated uh, space, um, Australians have been going there in that capacity for a long time. At the moment, you know, the other big um, uh, area has been construction, which that's where Saudi's taken on. They've got this project called Neom, and um, it's they're virtually going to try and build a, a Dubai on the uh, on the Red Sea, um, on the coast of on the uh, west coast of Saudi, and 
it's phenomenal. It is. It's you know, I, I can't remember the exact numbers. I think it's two or three hundred billion dollars. Just and they're building one a city called the Straight Line City. It's it's fascinating. And I'll email a link through so you can put in your show notes if you want. But um, the dollars they're spending is just monumental. And there's a lot of Aussies up there in Neom right now. Um, other areas too, we were seeing people who have intellectual property is probably the big one as well too. So not actual you know like a trade but they're specialist in something and they're going everywhere you know we're talking to people who are going to africa going to europe going to the united states um there's always that demand for um people's ip and i don't think you can really say it's one particular area or the other uh because we're seeing university professors we're seeing it specialists medical professionals military um, all these people are going to all these far-flung places. So one thing you can always guarantee that no matter how far you go in the world, you'll always bump into an Aussie. Now, they are everywhere. <laughs> one of the things that you were talking about with that third lot of legislation around basically whether you're deemed to be an Australian tax resident or not, can you just elaborate a little bit more on the implications of that? Because obviously your choice of destination has an impact on that, as you're saying, you know, Singapore is different from Hong Kong, for argument's sake. Um, what does that mean? If, if, if you are determined to be an Australian for tax, uh, a Australian resident for tax purposes, is that the proper terminology, and you live in one of these countries, what's the difference? So, so let's just pick Hong Kong and, and Singapore as, as, a, an, as an example. So Singapore, not much of a difference. You know, the DTA will protect you. You can move to Singapore and you'll be a resident under the DTA for even if you do fail the Australian side. Mm. Where it gets complicated is they've got these new tests about leaving Australia and becoming an expat. So historically, you could jump on a plane as long as your actions map to those tests, the previous tests that date back to 1936, you're a non-resident. Under these new rules, they're what's called adhesive. So they follow you. Mm. So... <laughs> If you, potentially you could be classified as an Australian tax resident for up to three years. The only way you can get out of that is when you leave the country, you have an employment contract that is for a minimum of two years and there's co accommodation in the area that you're able to rent. So if you move to Hong Kong, for example, and you don't have a job, Hong Kong rate of tax is 16.5% on, on personal income from memory, you will still be paying Australian tax for three years while you qualify to be a non-resident. If you move to Singapore, different story, the DTA will protect you. A great example is uh, engineers and, and those in construction game moving to Saudi. Nine times out of 10, the Saudi contracts are a year rolling contract. So it goes for a year and they renew it, renew it indefinitely after that period. Even if it goes for 10 years, it's still one year contracts. If you move to Saudi, Saudi's a great country, but not exactly Australia or Singapore. There is a little bit of a hardship there from a, from a Western expat's point of view. So you're paid a premium. If you leave Australia on a one-year contract, you'll be paying Australian tax on a Saudi income. So it is quite huge. So those in terms unless of how you, it's going to affect people. That's for three years, but unless after three years, they, you'd have to sell your property and you'd have to not come back for more than 45 days, basically. That would be the... You'd, the only way to get around it is that right no so when you when you leave the country to break your residency you need to be out of australia or not come back to australia in those first three years for greater than 45 days regardless of property regardless of anything you just cannot come back to australia for more than a month to be on the safe side whereas 
uh, once you go through that three and break your residency at that point then the economic assets and the accommodation test come into it so you can always fall back into residency um, if you do breach that 45 days the only way to get around it is to have a two-year contract so the concept of traveling the world and just cruising around and getting the odd jobs that's got to go it's you interesting because I imagine a lot of people got no idea about this when they when they no. sort of travel the the high seas. But I'm curious too. Do, does the government double dip? Does it say right? Well, you're paying Australian rates, but we'll still hit you 100% capital gains tax if you sell your property while you're away. Like, does it? You know, is it a double whammy? No, that's that's one thing, and people quite they're quite confused when they do hear me say this. Some of our clients who reside overseas are actually Australian tax residents because it suits them. Those with large property portfolios, um, they want to be deemed an Australian tax resident mm. to get the 50% capital gains discount. So it's, it's, they can't have it both ways in terms of um, you're a tax resident, but you get a paid, you know, you don't get the bells and whistles of being a tax resident. So the exception to that is obviously main residence exemption because you are signing the contract overseas. So, but everything else, yeah, they, they, they don't hit you on both sides, but where, where it does, I think, you know, the legislation helps some and it, it penalises most. So those who it helps are those who was always a bit of a gray space in terms of qualifying for residency. Um, people who work on super yachts, for example. So they don't really reside anywhere. They reside on the boat and the boat moves and, mm. and, and around they go. So, their qualification as a non-resident was always very sketchy, at least under these new rules, as long as they don't get back to Australia for greater than 45 days, then they're deemed a non-resident, so it helps them. Um, trailing spouses for diplomats, they were automatically treated as a tax resident from an Australian point of view if they wanted to work locally and, and work for an income. Under the new rules, it actually excludes them, which is actually good to see because we know a lot of trailing spouses and partners and, and uh, wives and husbands who are trailing spouses who don't work uh, overseas, they want to, but because they're Australian tax residents, it's not really worthwhile them doing it. Mm. So it does help a small minority, but the rest of them, it's just sometimes you, you guys know as much as I do, perception is more powerful than fundamentals and everything like that and the perception is if you own property you're a tax resident they don't read the rules mm. they don't say oh it's 45 days no they just go i can't hold property because of this and where i think it's going to really affect australia is is we saw queensland um a couple of years ago bring in the absentee levy where you had to pay one and a half percent tax on the ucv of the property greater than three hundred fifty thousand for memory and we had clients who had negative cash flow before they even started paying their rent. Uh, sorry, paying their mortgage because of that tax. So Queensland repealed it. They put a carve out saying, if you're an Australian citizen, it excludes you. But that's not to say it won't come back. Mm. You know, the governments have a mandate to raise money now because there's a lot of debt. And we saw the actions of the Victorian government. Yeah, you know, it was the last month, mm. uh, the month stamp before. Duty. You know, in terms of stamp duty mm. and you know the development, the fifty cent capital gains tax on on rezoning. You know, we always had clients watch the body language of a government. You can <laughs> see what's sort of coming down the line because if it's conciliatory, great. But if it's combative, yeah, brace for something. Well, they've obviously taken a war on expats here. Like it's kind of when I was doing planning, there was we get clients from America and. You know, you'd, you'd always sort of, they couldn't, basically, they're always a resident or a citizen from my understanding. It always gets dragged back to America. You could live there 
somewhere in the world yep. and your assets will always go back to America and you always get done with like inheritance tax and things like that. Unless you give away your passport or something like that. Is that sort of yeah. your understanding? The American sort of situation. Two countries. Yeah. Um, yeah. To Eritrea and Eritrea and the United States, the only two countries in the world that do citizenship-based taxation. And it dates back to Civil War days and they put the law in place to stop absconders from um, fleeing from the Civil War. But it's been there ever since. And wow. the IRS are the original founders of the Flat Earth Society when it comes to tax. So as an expat moving to the United States, um, your superannuation is not treated as a pension. It's treated as a foreign trust. It's taxable. Um, let's say, for example, you move to the United States, you have a property in Sydney, and that property's got $500,000 worth of debt. And the exchange rate at the time is, let's call it 80 cents to the US dollar. If you were to pay down that debt while you're a US resident, an Australian expat, and the currency goes in your favour, so you obviously repatriate capital back to Australia to pay off the debt, you will pay uh, capital gains tax on that capital gain you've got off that loan. So it's called a loan rebasing rule. Wow. So the US is really bad. And, you know, probably 20 to 30% of our client base is mixed nationality when it comes to, to you know, partnerships and, and marriage. So there's always the scenario of putting assets in different people's names um, to try and keep the IRS's claws out of them. And, yeah, it's, it's bad. It's, um, you know, the US, in terms of from a tax point of view, there are some benefits in the US that you can file jointly, which sort of smooths out your incomes, uh, those sort of things. But there's a lot of other things that are, are quite punitive. And, um, yeah, certainly coming to a place like Dubai where there is no personal income tax, but there's a very high cost of living, which is sort of like we call the Dubai tax, which is the same thing. We pay a mm. lot of fees. We never pay tax. We pay fees. Um, US people moving to Dubai have to get paid a lot more to make it worthwhile. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. What about stamp duty? So you did mention about um, Victorians' recent changes. Um, that's not so much for expats. That's basically to start paying back the COVID debt. Uh, I know New South Wales changed tax for non, um, non-residents non uh, a few yep. years back. I mean, different different states, different uh, tax regimes, obviously. It's different to the, the federal tax. What... What do overseas-based Australians or people that are buying and going overseas, what do they need to be thinking of with regards to stamp duty? It's a big one because um, when you live in a place, as a principal place of residence, you're not paying any tax. Mm. When that property converts into an investment property, people are suddenly paying $20,000, $30,000 a year in tax. And that's happened both in in Melbourne and Sydney for clients. And what we've found is people, when they do the numbers or we do the numbers for them, you know, we say, okay, right, yeah, right now you're running at about a 2.5% yield, take out stamps and land tax and all these things, um, you're actually negative. And it causes that, comp- you know, expats don't get negative gearing. So we mm. accrue tax credits in the background. But then, you know, 
they are sold on the premise that you don't pay tax in the future. But as I say to clients, if you're overseas for 10 years and you're building up tax credits, all you're doing is getting your money back. You're not getting a return on that money that you're forking out to plug that gap. So it is causing a big shift in people's mindsets when, when it comes to that because we you know, we had a client who was in um, uh, in Shanghai for about 15 years, had a property in North uh, Norwood, I think it is, in, in Adelaide, a uh, lovely area, and that property built up about $128,000 worth of tax credits. But guess what? He never returned to Australia to work. He retired in Italy. So what it meant was he virtually walked away from $128,000 worth of tax credits that he'd funded out of his own pocket, mm. never to get that back again. So I think people and are now becoming double, more aware. Well, a double whammy there too, because one of the reasons that you would um, accept a loss-making you know, investment in a yield sense is because you're banking on the capital gain. And then if you've got to pay yep. double the capital gains tax as well, you're sort of copying at both ends, aren't you? You are. You are. Mm. And, and I think that's where we're seeing sort of people starting to wake up to the premise of it. And look, as one client said to me the other day, if Australian property was 20, 30% cheaper than it is today, then you can suck it up and say it's still worthwhile. You know, because we do have emotional ties to Australia. It's a country we trust. You know, you want to, and, and what we say to clients is you want to accrue wealth in the country you intend to return to or retire to. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a natural, um, I guess, uh, pattern that we do repatriate mm. capital back to Australia and we buy property because property is religion in Australia. It's something mm. everyone knows and trusts. But now, yeah, we always talk to clients. When you become an expat, you've got to take the Cuba off because you're no longer an Australian citizen from a tax point of view. If you move to Dubai, you need to put the Kandura on because we're treated no differently to an Emirati in, from a tax point of view and that's how you have to manage your money. You have to be disciplined in that way. You know, one of the biggest, um, I guess, failures we see with especially newbie expats is they get overseas, they get a job, they get extra free cash flow and they do a rapid pay down of debt. And sometimes we catch them before it gets too late. Mm. Sometimes they're paid off and they're so proud they come to us and say, guess what, I'm, I'm, I'm debt free. And it's like, no, that's the wrong thing to do. And they're like, well, why is that? And I said, well, suddenly you've now gone into positive cash flow and you're paying 32.5% tax on all income that's coming through the door. <laughs> so they're like, oh. So then we can, you know, we talk about loan restructuring and all those sort of things. But um, it, it's it's something you've, your pattern of behaviour and managing money for 10, 20, 30 years in Australia, you have to forget that and treat it so differently on the other side because, um, you know, ignorance is not an excuse when it comes to those sort of things. And, yeah, we see people who, um, and sometimes I think they're sort of, they're, taking the piss, pardon the pun, um, they haven't lodged tax returns for five or 10 years and they've been getting, you know, uh, you know, rental income. And usually they've missed the first year, oops, I forgot that one, second year, oh, and then the third year, they're so panicked by the fact they haven't lodged the first three, they just refuse to do them. <laughs> and they're almost in tears and you can sort of hear them taking vodka and tequila shots in the background trying to talk about it because they're so nervous about it. And when I say to them, every month that you're putting in you know, funding the difference. Yeah. It's like, well, they owe you money. And it suddenly changes their whole mental framework in terms of uh, they thought they would have owed the ATO hundreds of thousands of dollars. They don't. The ATO owes them in tax credits. But, you know, once again, when people become an expat, they look at where to go to live, kids got to go to school, travel, finances like 50 you know, and it's great when people reach out to us before they go because we can tell them about MRE. Do not sell that property. You know, either sell it before you move or 
don't sell. Um, the big problem we see with with uh, the MRE side of it is a lot of folks they might have bought a one bedroom apartment in Bondi, you know, husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, doesn't matter, and then they go overseas together. Ten years later, they're coming back with a family. They can't fit into that one one bedroom Bondi apartment. So normally, what they do is they sell in advance and then trade up to a bigger, mm. and then they come back and move into that. They can't do that now. They virtually have to move back into this Bondi apartment, <laughs> one bedroom with a whole family, live there for six to 12 months to yeah. re-establish the MRE, and then they can sell it. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that Aussies who have come back because of COVID, have you got any idea of how many have come back? You said roughly that maybe there was a million and now there's 600,000 or something. So maybe three, 400 have come back. Is that... Uh, that's enormous. Yeah. Is that so a good number? Right. Okay. Wow. Um. So that would definitely have, you know, a, well, create a lot of demand for housing, right? A lot of all of them can afford to buy, but a lot of them would have cash that, and then be getting Aussie jobs. And when they've got the cash and the Aussie job, they're probably entering the market to get a home. Um. But you're saying that maybe a lot of the Aussies overseas are, you know, they don't want to come home. These tax rules are almost encouraging them just to stay away. To be honest. Um. And yeah. and you've also finding a lot of act. Aussies are probably leaving now because um, you know there's there's jobs overseas. The so maybe we've had up. that we've had that initial sort of hit, and maybe that's running out of steam. Yeah. And so um, and maybe the investment. I don't think the hit was there. I don't think the hit was actually there in the first place. And you know, it's like I always said, averages are dangerous. And you know, we follow the Australian press here on a daily basis, so we see domain articles and all these sort of things, and we see the articles coming out. Expat buys his property for twenty percent over ask and all mm. that sort of stuff. The majority of our clients who had to go back to Australia just moved back into their existing property. They didn't buy. Now, that creates, as Veronica said at the beginning, it creates a shortage on the rental market. Mm. I agree with that. But they weren't going back and, and buying everything because they had no jobs. They couldn't get a loan. So they're moving back in and, and making do. The other ones that are coming back, um, from the lending point of view, they had to rent because the Australian uh, the Australian banks would not provide a loan unless they had six months' worth of pay slips. So, yes, there were some people, and look, we talked to people who have been overseas for 10, 20 years, and they've always said, we'll go back at one point, and this was the emotional reason why they went back, and yes, they're walking in cash buys, you know, and they're paying some pretty stupid numbers, but that is probably 2 to 5% of people coming back. You know, the rest, the rest of the people coming back, you know, they're not the, the whales with the seven-figure, you know, bank balances who are walking and buying a place in, um, yeah, wherever. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, it's the minority, not the majority, that's for sure. What about the people that are planning their return and they're still overseas, though? I mean, what do they need to be thinking of when they're buying whilst, whilst they're still out of the country? Are there they just need to be aware of, yeah. I yeah, mean, look, I mean, mortgage side. Yep. Sorry, Veronica. Yeah. Do they? And, and and also, I was asking about the the stamp duty earlier. It's my understanding that some non-residents have to pay more stamp duty than residents. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. So, so there's more stamp duty, and if you leave it empty, there's the absentee surcharge down in Victoria mm. as well too. So some of the costs are, are quite prohibitive. You know, we had and one client you, ask us the other day about yeah. a holiday place, and I said, don't. I said you're better off buying a you know renting a penthouse in in a hotel in uh, on Collins Street than <laughs> from a financial point of view yeah. than buying a place. Yeah, <laughs> I mean I think the Aussies moving back. We've seen a few like you know Hong Kong, one in London. Um, but the, the thing is they come to us and they're earning good money. Um, 
But then we go look at banks, and there's not many banks that want to do expat lending. They all pulled the pin yeah. four or five years ago, um, or maybe a bit longer, even six years ago, like 2015, when uh, the market was going crazy. They sort of expats got hit first, and you know we can get you know, CBA will lend you money and Westpac, but it's about three or four times income, right? It's nowhere near what you could if you were earning that money in Australia. And there's some banks that will lend, you know, a decent amount of money, but you've got to have a 30% deposit. And so expat lending is really quite tough. It's not, you can't borrow that much. And usually expats come to us and say, oh, I'm earning all this great money. You know, what can I borrow? And I'm like, well, we can borrow a million dollars. And they're like, shit, I need two or three. Um, And so there's this real disconnect on the expat story, isn't it? It's not as big as people really think it is there's that many expats no. really buying one of the one of the reasons we uh, earlier this year we set up a, a division called atlas mortgages which is purely expat mortgage broking for that reason because um uh we've been working with a guy called jeremy harper for many years he's a former expat himself mortgage broker and it just became a bigger problem people's default is to go to the big four banks and when they hear no they think okay that's it no other banks will lend um you know jeremy talks to I think 32 banks on a, on a weekly basis and it's all the second tier banks. Yeah. Kudos and George's. Kudos, Heritage. And it, yeah, and, and banks are different. You know, some banks will factor in allowances. If you have an accommodation allowance, they'll factor that in. Other ones won't. So, and it depends on the bank's risk appetite at the time. Some some weeks, you know, they're full of expert loans so they don't want any and then the next week they've paid a few out so they're happy to take some more. It's um, It really comes back to... Um, uh, different scenarios when it comes to the person. You know, you have gold tier and silver tier currencies. So even though the dirham, what I earn, is uh, pegged to the US dollar, it's a silver tier currency. So you take a 20% haircut on the of, off the top. Whereas if you earn in a gold tier currency like US dollars, Hong Kong dollars, then it's a 10% haircut. Sometimes banks will apply the Australian marginal tax rate on your servicing ability and sometimes that won't it really is just and that's one of the reasons why we you know got jeremy into to do atlas mortgages because it is changing so quickly and it's so difficult and it's such a mm. niche niche area um you know it's not something you do half pregnant you can't do it on the side a bit you have to be focused on just that space on a daily basis but we are getting loans through you know we had you know we've had development loans through believe it or not we've actually got development loans for experts through so, you know, you just got to talk to the right bank, have the right scenario, and, and the stars can align, but it's not an easy process. Not a lot harder than someone walking in uh, off the street from Oz anyway. Yeah. Are Aussies going back to where they've grown up, or are they going to different cities? Like, in your, you know, because they've been priced out of, say, Sydney, Melbourne, do, you know, anecdotally, I've got a few clients who, you know, different, not from, say, Sydney, or from Sydney or Melbourne or Adelaide, and they're moving to Brisbane, for example, like... There's been a few that I find a bit funny. They've never lived in these cities before, but they haven't saved as much cash as they thought they would overseas or they haven't invested it and got, you know, compounding investment returns because of leverage. And so they maybe have got a million bucks, but they haven't got any Aussie property market exposure. So that million bucks doesn't go very far, right? Um, And so, you know, are you finding that as well where people are going to places like, you know, they're a bit more cheaper even though they've earned quite a lot of money overseas? Yeah, that and also they're going to where the perceived jobs are in their in their respective fields. So if your if your job is in an area that's like Perth, you'll move to Perth, whether you've lived there or not before, just to improve your chances of getting a job. Um, yeah, Brisbane's been a big one, uh, both from a a cost of living point of view, a 
perception point of view in terms of okay it's always been you know a nice place to visit and stuff let's try there um and and the other ones too you know to me have been people who they just need somewhere temporary to wait out the storm of what's going on and then they'll go back overseas again so cost of living is just purely the reason for that alone mm. and do you think a lot of expats do want to do that they just want to sort of travel around have a time here and then you know they're, yeah. they're just true expats yeah. like they they don't yeah. really see we call our clients satellites <laughs> yeah they, they just orbit the, they, and you know pre-pandemic we we called a lot of our clients boomerangs so they'd come back into australia six months in the husband would be saying oh yeah not exactly what it used to be and then 12 months in both the husband and the wife are saying the same thing within 18 months they're back overseas again um and look it's people move overseas for different reasons there's some who just do it purely financially they live uh like a pauper while overseas just to bank as much cash mm. and i know many of those sort of people so to them it's not about the expat journey it's just about money uh but they would be 10 percent. the other 90 percent it's about uh career opportunities a lot of our clients can't return to australia because their job doesn't exist in australia mm. you know the world is that big and the other group um they want something different you know australians if you go back to you know sort of that in 1900s we've been expats since then you know in terms of moving to america and moving to asia and, and all these sort of things australians well, have always longed to do that haven't they we're the free set the original settlers are the original expats really when you think about it <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> With with the whole job thing though, and, and I've known people that have gone overseas, and and then yeah, they've risen to certain you know senior ranks, and of course then they're in an industry, often in the finance industry, where yeah, there's just not those jobs in Australia, and so anybody who does want to return, that's hotly contested for any senior roles, you know, because every expat would love to get one if they can, but. You know, what about, you know, in, in a small sense, work from home has meant that we can decentralise in Australia. You know, you can go and live regionally or live in Brisbane if your job's in Melbourne now um, uh, as a result of COVID, right? And is that happening on a global sense? Work from home is a, a thing, but I think, you know, a lot of countries, UAE is one of them, has, has embraced a, a nomad visa. So you can actually legally reside in the UAE and work from afar. Yeah, so if you work for someone in London, you can work in, out of the UAE and it's like three or four hour time difference is actually quite easy to manage. To me, the biggest problem is if you want to work in Australia from afar, um, you know, with a, a employer from afar, it's a time zone difference. It really is. It's mm. a killer. Yeah, you know, it's a bit of a nightmare, you know, isn't we're it? <laughs> talking to a lot of folks who are working, who are back in Australia, who are working London hours. Mm. Um, their day starts at 10 p.m. Yeah. Yep. So much so, fun. No, exactly. And if you look in the major, major hubs, you know, if you're looking at New York, for example, so what's at 8 p.m., you mm. know, you're looking at a 2 a.m. start as well. Yeah. Yeah, we had a guy move back from Boston. Might be wrong. Uh, Maybe, I think it was pretty Boston. It was a fun trader, you know, super smart guy, but was working U.S. hours and did it for six months. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. it, kids, no chance could happen. Mental health dropped, right? And um can't manage it right and had to let go of you know a job and that job is just not here mm. it's like no. you know they just don't exist. exist it just like you know he'd be going into funds and say look this is what i do and they're like does that even you know do people do that you know yeah. and so it's so yeah. hard because um you're right like for them it's just you know the temptations to go back overseas again and it's just yeah. uh yeah sometimes it's an itch they need to scratch you know mm. it's not financial it's, it's just it's just personal yeah, you know, and we, we, we say to clients all the time, 
you know, I can give you an Excel spreadsheet that tells you to do A, B, or C. And sometimes you do D because that's what makes you feel better. But at least you're fully informed. And that's, I think, why you guys do this podcast is give people the information to make informed decisions. They can choose to ignore it or they can choose to to do it. At least they know. um, At least they know. And that's the the big thing we, we find from an expat's point of view. The ATO, the Canberra, state governments, they do an absolute poor job of communicating with expats about any changes. You know, I don't know how they mm. expect folks to find out about these changes, osmosis, ESP, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, um, that's the job we sort of take on board ourselves is trying to – we run a lot of complimentary and free set webinars and those sort of things to try and inform expats because, hey, heads up, this is coming on the track or this is what's going on because there is so much misinformation out there and, and Google's good. But Google, you'll get 80% of the parts, but in terms of how they join together, it doesn't always do the same job. And, and that's the problem we see with a lot of folks is, is they have good intentions and they have good reasons, but they execute poorly just because they've sort of winged it a bit as opposed to uh, doing it properly. Well, not only that, but I mean, some of the, the, um, the taxation laws they don't make sense. So how could you possibly possibly anticipate, for instance, if you lived in your home for 20 years, you know, you might go away thinking, oh, I'm probably going to have to pay some capital gains tax on, on any growth after I move, but you'd never think in a million years that it'll go right back to when you bought the property. Brett, this has been really amazing and, and I've wanted to know, you know, we've been asked these questions around, you know, this ho- whole idea about other expats coming back and I even had a journalist call me the other week to say, oh, you know, I've been hearing that expats are really coming back and buying up big in Australia. Have you seen that? I'm like, well, no, I haven't. Um, let, me, let me ring some people I know in Melbourne and Brizzy and see if they're finding it and both of them, no, I haven't either. This actually hit the news, this story. Right, and and it was all bullshit when I think about it because basically I, I couldn't comment because I didn't know anything. Um, yeah. But it, uh, you know, for what you're saying, there's <laughs> not this massive flood of expat dollars coming to Australia to buy a property. So it sounds yeah. like a beat up story. Um, yeah. and, it's and, like that beat up story about Dubai with the drones, and I don't know if you saw that about all the rain. <laughs> yeah, they were using <laughs> drones to cloud seed, and all the Australian media were running these videos with just torrential downpours. And we're getting messages left, right, and centre saying, "Oh my God, it's raining in Dubai in summer." And I take a photo and look outside. Blue skies? No, it's not. Oh no but, way! You know, they, they, they find a theme and they just run with it. They just run with it. <laughs> and, Media watch. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, we, 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 we get we get you know approached by the, the journalists as well. And if we can't back up the angle they're trying to yeah, push, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. they yeah. won't they won't talk to us. They yeah, won't call you again, will they? Yeah. I now, mean, Brett, have you got a property Dumbo for us? I mean. Um, You've already alluded to a lot, which I think is really important for um, people thinking about going overseas, right? Like lots of listeners mm. will be like, you know, I've got a good job opportunity in um, US, right? Like, what does that really mean from a tax point of view? Should I get some advice? And you know, you're a perfect man for that type of thing. But also, Aussies living overseas, should I buy an investment property? Well, let's figure that out, like from a tax point of view, and you, you know, capital gains tax and negative gearing, and get that advice because you know, even if you don't, if you decide to stay overseas a lot longer than you expect. You know, or you don't ever come back. Like that mm. could really shoot yourself in the foot. So, but give us a property dumbo, a story that you um you think our people can learn from. Never buy off the plan <laughs> as an expat, <laughs> and and the reason for that is nine times out of ten, you're buying in a location or region you have no clue, so you don't have that ability to do your own research. Second of all, uh, expats are treated as an easy target. You know, they, the, the, 
the people who are the promoters will play on your heartstrings as an Aussie, you know, best back in Australia, you can't go wrong. Um, it's not until I show these people my LinkedIn messages of the commission rates that I get offered uh, if I can get clients into these properties. You wow. know, I'm talking 5 and 10% of the property value. And I say to them, you know, if, if you get, you're paying at least this much above market. Um, so there's nothing wrong with Australian property. You know, yes, it's expensive. Does it get much further? That's a whole other episode. But to me, you know, you make money in property on the way in. So you always want to buy something that is stacks up on a value basis. And, um, yeah, there's too much uh, stock and inventory that it's building up right now that I'm starting to see being flogged again overseas. And uh, it does make me nervous. It's funny you should say that because – you know, at the beginning when we were chatting, so listeners, when we were chatting with Brett before we actually pressed record, we said, have you listened to any episodes? And he said no. And so we can tell you we have not we have not set him up to say this, but Brett, for your in- interest, we are always on the case about do not buy off the plane <laughs> for lots yeah. of reasons. That's one of them. The commission's obviously paid to people that are that are recommending it to you is, is absolutely one of the reasons. But so what you're saying and the very fact that you've said this says to me that you've seen – You've must have seen some examples of people that have really shot themselves in the foot by buying it. Massively, massively, and and they'll come to me and go, "Do you know about this location?" Like, never heard of it. It's like, well, never have I. I own a place there, and it's scary. You know, would you would you buy a car without test driving it? Would you? You know, it's just. Mm. I think sometimes people just uh, if it's easy, people aren't lazy, but they'd like to be if they can. And if it's put on a platter, just sign here, sir. You know, sign here, ma'am. And they uh, feel good. They get that emotional currency mm. by doing it. I'm, I'm providing for my family. I'm doing this and doing that. But, you know, it's like the five Ps, isn't it? You know, prior preparation prevents blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, the same thing with buying property. You know, you make money on the way in. And if you're paying above the odds for something that's worth a lot less, um, and it's not a good performing asset as well. Well, that's it's it. Just that it's what double, you buy. <laughs> exactly. I think what's exactly. interesting to me in that story is that, you know, what actually happens in expat world, right? It's the, you know, there's a lot of financial planners that um, are English, you know, Aussies, you know, living in these expat locations. You're an Aussie financial planner that's gone over there that is sort of dealing with Aussie sort of financial plans, right? You're doing Aussie regu- regulation, right, in terms of your... Advice. Yeah, we, we call this the embassy. You yeah, know, this yeah. office here in Dubai is under ASIC regulations and everything, as well as local. Mm. But everything's, everything's, there's no different to if I was sitting in Sydney, Melbourne, or Brisbane. Yeah, exactly. And that's not what every financial planner in expat world is, right? So a lot of financial no. planners are basically a lot lower barrier to entry. Um, you know, the products they get offered can be commission based. Um, and, they're all uh, commission based, they're, yeah. they're, they're salespeople. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Isle of Man, yeah. 10-year bonds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, I've got mates who, you know, financial planners in different parts of the world and, you know, and they do work on these commission bases, right? And commission bases yeah. uh, encourages them to look for other commission-paying products and off-the-plan yeah. property is just one of those commission-paying products, right? And um, yep. they put them into investment bonds that pay huge commissions, um, insurance, you know, that... You know, things that just yeah. won't ever really benefit them. There's better things out there for them. But the regulations in these countries are so low, they target expats from all over the world and then they'll shift them these Aussie properties. And um, you know, you've always got those investment seminars. But I think in, you know, in these expat circles, I reckon they're prolific, right? These, you know, yeah. property spruikers go over there, 
They create these events. They put on a nice dinner. They, you know, wine and dine them, and then they offer these, you know, high-rise apartments and um, the commissions they get are enormous. Is, you know, is that what you see just commonly around always in these expat locations? Yeah, and I always say, I say to everyone, whether it's the investment bonds, whether it's property, who's paying the bill? Mm. Yeah, you know, that's 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 where you should look at it. Yeah, you know, as an atlas, as a firm, we don't accept commissions. Mm. Um, if we refer a client to a buyer's agent, you know that's between that person. We just refer that person because they do a good job. Yeah. To us, it's 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 um, you know who who's who's putting food on the table. If someone else is paying that person's bill, then you're not the boss. That other person is, and um, you know the only dollar we get paid by clients is by the client. So as I say to clients. You know, whether you do what I say or don't, I don't care. I've been paid. But you've got informed decisions, whereas it's always that if it's too good to be true, it is too good to be true. And, and yeah, look, it's amazing how emotive a rendering is. <laughs> you know, when you look oh, at these God, sort of things, yeah. they, you know, look, oh, look at it beautiful and we're walking yeah. on the streets and everything. And then you actually visit it and there's not a tree in the street and it's <laughs> barren and, you know, it's just... <laughs> yeah, but they they know how to you know where this industry is incredibly adept is emotion. You know their sales training is phenomenal. That's where all their money goes in sales training. Um, and to me, they know the right words. They know those trigger points. They know all these sort of things. You know they they lead with leading questions. And and it really um, for yeah we always miss Oz. You know even if we're back there once a year, which we haven't been, but even during normal times, you know, we always love that tie to Australia. Just that, I've got that hand on that, the tiller back in, back in Oz. And they will play to that, you know, to the cows come home. And then uh, then they're off. They're overseas yeah. and to another country and in another conference room and doing what they do. Yeah. So no, sad, isn't it? So true. I just I just want Aussies that are overseas, um, just be careful of financial planners that are, you know, Aussies or English or whatever selling the – the investment bonds all over there. I've just seen it. I know what sort of commissions are in these. You know, go see someone like oh, you, huge. Brett, to be honest. Um, you know, so if you're an Aussie overseas and you want advice, and I think you're in safe hands with Brett. So thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Such a great chat. I think the expat thing is it's such a big misunderstood thing. And um, if anything does mm. change in this world and you want to sort of have another chat, just reach back out. We'd love to have you on. Yeah. Change is a constant in our space, so more than happy to uh, keep you guys informed and it depends on which state government or which, you know, politician in Canberra decides to pull a switch. But the rate of change is huge and, you know, always happy to keep you guys informed as well too. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.